Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena and today our guest is a business strategy expert who founded a business innovation consultancy that helps to transform digital companies through strategy and design. Our guest has also recently released a book, Future State Design, which aims to help entrepreneurs think differently about the future of their business. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Mark Wilson. Thanks for having me. Uh, So you're a digital strategist with 30 years experience in the field. For anyone who doesn't know, what does a digital strategist do? It's a really good question. And it's um, something that I get asked a lot, actually. So I think when you boil it down, my job is focused on helping leaders of companies turn their businesses into stronger digital businesses. So I'm generally working with them to figure out what comes next, how they are going to invest in the months and years ahead, what they should be betting on effectively for for the future, and then plotting out the, the route they take to get there. So we always say that strategy, when you boil it down, is very simple. It's where are we going and how do we get there? And in, a, in, in my world, all of that is around digital business. And when a business comes to you, will they have a specific time frame in which they want to reach that particular goal? Will you look at kind of 10 years into the future, 20 years into the future? What does that time frame typically look like? For the most part, those sorts of long timescales I don't think are useful these days. Now, there are there are exceptions. There are certain types of organizations where that kind of longevity in thinking is really important. So if you're a city planner or you're um, working on infrastructure or those sorts of things, if you're obviously building HS2 or something, then you've got to think on multi-decade timescales. But for most organizations, those timescales are too long. And particularly for people who are going through any kind of transformation, it's very difficult for ordinary people, all of us, to get our heads around what committing to a really long timescale means and how great our role can be in it. So in all of our future state design work, we generally use a three to five year horizon, three whenever we can. Most people can equate to a three year timescale. So for the most part, the organization that needs to get behind this, the leaders of the business and everybody else that's, that's effectively investing their time and energies in getting to this future version of the company, one commits to those sorts of timescales, both you know emotionally and psychologically. So we find that that window is really critical. I think when people talk about the future, you know, there's all these things around speculative futures and it's almost a, a sci-fi process in some cases there, and it just takes things too far away from reality. And we've all seen over the last few years just how much can change. I mean, look how much changed in the last two years. You know, we've had a pandemic in there. You know, we're also in the middle of a war. And nobody was expecting that to happen. That's disrupted lots of industries that were previously in good shape. It's changed the dynamics of the banking system and global trade and supply chains and all sorts of things. So in a, in a window of that size, particularly in the digital economy, an awful lot can change. And how did you end up in this field? Well, long story. Um, I originally was trained to be an architect. So I did my degree in architecture way, way back. And bizarrely, my university had one of the first Macs that came into the country. And I hated computers at the time. I remember the school secretary said to me, I think you'll really like this. I've just done an audio tape to learn how to use it. She said, and it's great. And I know you're allergic to them, but, you know, give it a go. And 
that was it really i think at that point that was the first time that i'd felt like there was a piece of technology that was very accessible and that i could use as a as a creative tool in a way that all the pcs and things up until that point hadn't been and that just changed the way that i thought about the world i think i then went and did a year in architecture you know worked on the design of a, of a couple of buildings realized they were going to be years away from being completed by that point i realized that what i really wanted to do is apply the same kind of thinking to the digital world which i thought could lead to much faster turnaround of delivery much more you know a much more kind of iterative world than buildings and yeah i still look at nice new buildings going up and wonder hmm, did i do the right thing but actually that that step into that world was was very straightforward they did lots of work with people like apple's advanced technology group way way back in the day developing 3d interfaces and all sorts of strange things so i just kind of fell into it really um and i've worked in it ever since and what, what are the similarities between say architecture and, and digital strategy how did you make that transition so again we're going back 30 odd years at the time there were lots of people in architecture who were moving into the digital domain actually there's an interesting combination of creativity and engineering that is is involved in in the design of any space or any building right? so you've got to think about context you have to think about what it's meant to be like to be in you've got you know you've got to think about the aesthetics of it but it's also got to stand up and i think in many ways that it's a it's a kind of a multi-dimensional design discipline that has lots of those associated disciplines attached to it too. So you've got engineers and structural engineers and civil engineers and this whole strand of people over there. You've got landscapers and landscape architects and interior designers. There's, there's a whole suite of people that get involved in the creation of buildings. And I think that's very similar, actually, particularly as time has moved on to how digital businesses operate and how you bring a digital service to life. Even to this day, I still kind of think of what we do as architecture that word has come to mean something different in the digital domain but i still think in many ways that what we do when we're designing a company or a service is very much what an architect does with a building you went to uni and studied architecture and then eventually along the way you decided you wanted to go into strategy at what point in this journey did you realize that actually you wanted to start your own business um wilson fletcher and you know begin that venture uh, we started Wilson Fletcher nearly 20 years ago. Before that, I'd been the director of a big multidisciplinary design company. And then that business was sold into a big group. And as with many of those big group mergers, ended up with most of the people in our business leaving. Um, and that's when we set up Wilson Fletcher. Um, and we had kind of an anchor client at that time who just started working with us on a really interesting project. And they wanted to come with us. And that's really, you know, it went from there, really. And that first project was creating a commerce platform for a research company in California. So it was helping them figure out for the first time how to sell and present millions of research reports to clients all over the world. And that really then set the pattern for what we've done ever since. Starting uh, this first venture, I guess like strategy and being a strategist, did it help in the building of that because obviously you know your clients are businesses did you feel like you had behind the scenes knowledge of of how to take your your business from a to b honestly no um and i think i think in many ways there there's a very telling lesson and it's one of the reasons that we do what we do it's a human nature challenge actually that it's very difficult to have perspective on yourself as you'll know yourself friends, partners, family, whoever, they will see things in you that you won't necessarily easily recognize in yourself. Scale that up to small or a medium or a large company, 
all of the same things apply. I think when you look at a business, and it's exactly the same for us, we've made many, many mistakes over the years that we would never let our clients make, particularly you know, in, in running a small business. There are always ups and downs, and we've worked very hard on our culture. We run a four-day week. We do all of these things that we've engineered very carefully to have the optimal environment for doing the kind of work that we do. And it doesn't make you immune from the challenges that businesses have. And likewise, in, in the companies that we work with, we're so often advising them about things where we're saying, look, actually, you should be considering this kind of direction rather than this kind of direction. And I'm sure if they'd sat and, and had a look at us as an external voice, they'd have been pointing out interesting things about our business and what it should and shouldn't do. So I think much of this comes down to the challenge of perspective, actually. And again, it's really where all of our future state design methodology came from, that people are very, very rooted in where they are and what they're doing. And they almost build a real vested interest in their current state. It's safer, it's less risky to do things that aren't as big a, as big a change. So even going back, you know, to when we formed, you know, starting a business at that point was really the only way that we could do this type of work because there wasn't anywhere to go and work that did it. So it was a, it was a, you know, in many ways, a, a process of necessity for us to run the business in the first place. And I think that's true of, you know, quite a lot of founders these days. They have an idea they want to do something, you know, it wasn't called that then, um, but, you know, it was just starting a business. So I think... For many people, the challenge is how you maintain perspective on the things that you're doing so that you, you don't get blinded by all the things that are happening in your current state. I just want to go back to kind of understanding what, what really motivates you as a strategist. What do you think is, is the most exciting thing about strategy? Um, breakthrough moments. I think the, the days that you go home buzzing are when you've made a connection between things that haven't been seen before, or you've worked with a, a client team and you get to a point where they're really excited about something that they can do that's new. So I think when you come up with ideas and you generate new concepts for everything from a service that they could deliver to their customers through to how they charge for things and kind of underlying business models and things, it's the invention part of it, I think, because much of the type of strategy that we do is built on insights, ideas, you know, generating sparks for, for things that they can do instead of today. So yeah, definitely the days that I go home with the broadest smile on my face is when you feel like you've hit on something that you think, you know what, that one thing that came out today could completely change that organization over the next few years. So you've recently released your new book, future state design. Can you explain to our listeners what is a future state design? So really future state design is a way to think and a way to separate yourself from all of those current state challenges. So the reason that I wrote it in the end was that it's been a key part of our work now for many years. And what we recognized more and more and more as time went on is that, again, because our work is rooted in helping people become digital businesses, right? so everybody needs to optimize how they can run their business as part of the digital economy, right? That's the world we're in, and that's what we have to do to succeed in any kind of business these days. So all of our work is in that domain. So in theory, everybody should be thinking about quite exciting things for the future. They should be thinking about what opportunities that should open up. What you realize is that most people are very rooted in the things that help them run the business today. 
So operational data, you get lots of businesses who've got really great data. And obviously data is one of those topics that everybody talks about as being vital. And it is. But it can also be quite dangerous when you're trying to think about what you should do next. Because for the most part, and there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, data can tell you what has happened and what is happening now. It can, to some degree, project forward and say, and this might happen next, but it can't take account of unexpected circumstances and you know other, other changes in the market. So it's really a kind of a current and a backward-looking indicator of how the business is doing. The same with financials. If you look at companies' accounts, you often see companies that are doing really well on paper. And then when you get through the door, you realize that they haven't invested in, in the future for a decade. And now, actually, they're running towards the cliff edge really quickly because around them, others are coming into their marketplace or their competitors have, been, have invested more. And so when you look at them on paper, they look amazing. When you look at them in the reality of that company, they're actually incredibly fragile. So I think we realized over time that much of this was bound up in people's inability to step out of today and to think genuinely about what their future could look like if they removed the constraints of the current business and thought about what they could be instead to a, a, an exercise that's one of my favorites is taking them out of their office, ideally, where they can see their own company from across the road or something, and ask them to invent the business that's put them out of business. So fundamentally, you're now creating company X and um, we're three years from now, this company put that company over there out of business over the last three years. How did it do it? Once people get warmed up and you facilitate the, the conversation and you keep prodding and, and testing them, often by the ends of those sorts of exercises, you'll get a team of people, often a very experienced leadership team, sitting there going, well, why aren't we just doing this now? And that's really the point, is to get them to a point where you're thinking in the future, albeit a relatively near one, so that you realize that actually many of those things that you believe you should do at that point are actually things that you can start to do now. And that means that by the time you get three years down the line, some of those things, you know, you'll have exceeded many of them, but you'll also have developed a business that's much more prepared for the future that it's going into. So really that's what the book is all about. It's written to be very accessible and a hopefully entertaining read in the context of it's, it's a bit of a manifesto to say why you should think like this. And it's a bit of a how-to to say, and these are the sorts of things that you need to focus on and definitely not focus on when you're going through a process of imagining what your business can become. And for many people who've kind of read preview copies and things who are clients or colleagues in the business, they all pick up on the same points really, which is that most of the things that we're saying aren't key to modeling your future are all the things that businesses are investing heavily in today, like data. There's no mention or there's little mention of things like agile, which is obviously something that every business is obsessing around, not in any way relevant to building a vision of the future. Great as a delivery model to help you get there at times, but without a clear vision and without a real direction of travel that's built on you know, some inventive thinking, all it's going to do is, is potentially take you in, you'll make progress, but are you making progress in the right direction? So I think it, it, it's to get people out of that mindset of all the things that have been schooled into the industry over the last 10 years to say, many of those things are still really important for how you operate your business. But if you try to use them to project forward, 
to really unlock your potential in the coming years, they will almost all hold you back. And what would you say to a business that, you know, in response to what you've just said, might ask, well, why can't we just imagine a strategy with the tools that we have right now? You'll end up making a version of what you are now. And again, as we were saying about that human nature problem, it is very, very difficult to step out of your current state. So what will tend to happen is that people will build a very iterative view. A classic is that they'll ask customers. Now, it's great that people are talking to customers finally after decades of companies like ours campaigning for companies to talk to customers more. And so now customers are a much tighter part of many of those processes. But actually, they're very often just as bad at looking into the future about the things that they might want as anyone else is that's involved in that business because most of their needs tend to be present. And you know what it's like yourself. You don't sit there when you're on a, a supermarket website going, I just wish that in a few years' time they'd made this happen. You're there to do the shopping. And actually, when you do lots of work with customers at that point, what tends to happen is that there's a kind of recursive thing that goes on where customers tell other businesses about all the same things. So they all end up in the same place. So one supermarket, you know, a customer will say, oh, actually, over there, they're doing this much better than you. So you should do what they do instead. So supermarket A picks that up and makes it a bit better. And then the customers of supermarket A, when they're interviewed by supermarket B, tell them how much better their version is. And then supermarket B adopts it. And you've seen this in banking over the years recently, right, where the fintech startups have started doing all these nice things. The Monzo's of the world came along, introduced much more elegant ways of doing digital banking. And all the other banks just copy each other. So many of those features have just rippled out across the industry. And that's what tends to happen is that you, you get this kind of weird echo chamber and feedback loop from existing customers who actually want you to serve them now with something that's really good. So the examples that we often use are obvious ones deliberately, and there are many others. But you know, if somebody had said to you a few years ago, would you like to go and stay in a stranger's house when you travel? You've said, no. You know, would, would you like to call an unlicensed taxi to the side of the road to pick you up and take you home at the end of the night? you'd have said no. And many of those sorts of services that have had really profound impacts on how people are behaving and, and have had very disruptive impacts on lots of industries, if you ask people whether they wanted them at the time, they'd have said no. And I think that's, that's really the, the thing that Future State Design is trying to unlock. It says that the future customer is not the one that you have today. And even over the course of a year, two years, three years, their attitudes and what they are going to be willing to and interested in buying from you is going to change a lot. So things that they don't do today, they will be receptive to in different ways in the future. So again, we're another really key part of this is the idea of how our expectations now are all based on looking at a phone screen. So the phones become the kind of remote control for life. And what it means is that all of these services have had to be kind of normalized down to a phone screen size. So they, lots of them behave in similar ways. But again, on a really simple level, if you're a local shop or a local service or a startup has developed an amazing booking system and it's incredibly simple and incredibly quick and in a couple of clicks you've booked something, you then have that expectation of what the booking system's like. So when you come to use the booking system for your doctor or a restaurant or anything else, that benchmark has now been set at the level of that one over there. And that's how those kind of aggregate experiences now get 
spread across people. So if you just look in your own sector, all the booking approaches in your sector could be of a similar standard and you think you're doing fine, but your customers over here are having an amazing experience with a business that's nothing to do with you, but is now making your booking process feel really bad for them. So we need we need to be looking at much broader ranges of influences and pulling on threads from a lot more directions to get people to think about where they could go. Again, that's really what's at the heart of all of this. It's, it's you know, let go of the stuff that's close to you, look further afield and think more broadly about where people are going to be so that when they get there, you're already there. And as you've mentioned, a really central part of the future state design is thinking and imagining what future customers for that particular business will be like and what their demands will be like. How can a business do this when the future can be so unpredictable? And, you know, we've really seen in in recent times, you know, the unprecedented nature of events like the pandemic and then, of course, the war in Ukraine and then, you know, inflation as a result of all of these various things that, you know, businesses couldn't have necessarily accounted for. How can a business predict what their future consumer will be like? It's a great question. And it's one of the most difficult and interesting things to do. It turns out that you can get pretty close by looking at the range of things that are going on at any given point in time. And again, the timescales are really important. So if you ask me what people are going to be doing in 10 years, I'd say that's just a, a fairy tale, right? So all of the trends analyses and all those sorts of things that are out there about long-term changes in behavior, I would pay no attention to them whatsoever because we change for very different causalities than just those sorts of big macro trends. Something happens like a cost of living crisis and suddenly subscription services are being cut all over the place that were formerly golden children of the stock market. And we're growing like crazy. So all of these little little um, impacts can really matter. But when you think about the future customer, what we need to do is we need to start imagining from the things that they're doing more broadly in their life, what kinds of behaviors could we imagine they will become comfortable with or receptive to because of the things that they're doing now. And they are normally outside of a given company sector. So a great example from the last couple of years would be the shift to virtual GP appointments happened. It was obviously forced on everyone. But now many people, when surveyed, say that they prefer that as a method of a first consult with a GP. Quicker, more convenient. They don't need to be in a waiting room. And they can generally fit it around their schedule better. So what that means is that there's now a receptiveness across society for having deeply personal and intimate conversations about very sensitive matters on a video call with a GP and other you know, medical professions. So there's a kind of softening of the reluctance that you might see in consumers to do those sorts of things. So can you extend that out into the financial services industry, for example, or other parts of the health industry? And the answer is generally yes. So once people have got over a barrier in one area, you can make a reasonable assumption that as long as they've had generally good experiences there and there hasn't been a horrible backlash against those things happening, that they will then be more comfortable to do other sorts of things like that in the years ahead. So where a bank, say, may not have felt that it could offer a particular type of service to customers before that, now they may well say, actually, we think our future customers will be more receptive to that. um, And that's something that we can build towards. So it's really um, a process of inferring and modeling what could be 
achieved by building on the emerging behaviors of customers today. And it's actually a pretty powerful and reliable technique because, again, we're not trying to project out 10, 20, 30 years into the future. And in the book, another idea is that the tools that businesses currently use, such as data, commercial results, looking at what competitors are doing, and even market research, have the potential to inhibit a business and really stop them from progressing. Some people might find this to be quite a bold idea or a bold statement. Why, why do you think this? A really simple example I think everybody could hopefully agree with. So there, there are trends reports and things published all the time about where particular sectors are going, how consumers are starting to behave. But there's a, there's a whole ton of this stuff that's published all the time. Individual companies also do their own research, often in similar areas. So when you're looking at fashion brands, for example, they'll all be asking customers similar things. But if you if you think about even just that more publicly published stuff for a while, when you're following those sorts of visible trends, it infers that everybody's going to end up in the same place because they're all following the same rails. Now, if there's one thing that businesses need to be in the digital economy, it's distinctive. They need to be able to stand out because they've really got to build market position in highly competitive marketplaces and they've got to be unpredictable. So in order to build some space and some distance from their competitors, they have to do things that aren't the same as them. Now, if everybody's following all of the same trends advice and all of the same patterns, and they're all speaking to the same customer groups about the same sorts of topics, then they will inevitably end up in largely the same place. That, for me, is where the greatest dangers lie in all of those things, that you're effectively building averageness into everything. And actually, many of the things that we've all come to really enjoy in our lives as services and businesses over the last 10 or 15 years have largely been new. There've been things that did an unexpected thing, like you know, the Airbnb and Uber examples that we used earlier. You go all the way back to the iPhone. At the time, when you asked people, they wanted two things. All of Nokia's customers were telling them they wanted longer battery life. All of BlackBerry's customers were telling them they wanted better and better keyboards. And there was no way they were going to use a smartphone without a keyboard. And then Apple introduced something different. And because people then got hold of this thing and realized that it did something different to both of those other two devices, the world changed. And I think that's the kind of thing that we see occurring on a smaller scale. Obviously, those are the big headline stories, but we see this occurring in all sorts of businesses all the time, that there are too many of the inputs they're getting about how to think about their future are actually very bound in today and what people can tell them about today. And it's very reassuring to hear, oh, yeah, people just want more of the same. They want this to be better than it is now, but they actually really like it. It's much lower risk psychologically to invest in something that's a better version of what you have now. The problem with that, of course, is that if somebody else goes and makes something that's a radical departure from it because they weren't listening to those things, then your chances of ever catching up to that competitive gap that they open up is really, really slim. And those are all the big examples that we've seen over the years of, and we are still seeing, of companies struggling with the kind of disruptive aspects of the digital economy. And I believe that much of that is because they're looking in the wrong places to figure out where to go next. What recent shifts or major shifts have we seen in the digital economy that's impacting the way businesses come up with a strategy? There are a few things. Um, 
Technology is always the thing that people think is at the heart of the digital economy. And obviously, technology as an underlying thing is critical to many of the things that go on, but it really isn't the important part of that transition. It's organizational behavior and thinking. And I think one of the most interesting areas um, is how business models are evolving. So you can see that the way that we pay for things, for example, has changed a lot over the years. You know, just down the road from here, we've got one of the new Amazon walk-in, walk-out retail stores. You know, there's no checkout process. You're basically just picking up products, putting them in your bag, leaving the store. Behind the scenes, there's a very transparent payment process going on. We're seeing a big shift in media. We've done lots of work with newspapers, for example, who have had a really hard time when, you know, Google arrived, stole their cake, gave everything away free. And it's been a kind of a long journey of trying to get that back. One of the key things in there has been the business model. So we worked with the Times and Sunday Times years ago on putting their paywall in place and figuring out how to start charging for journalism again. We're now at a point in time, what, 11 years later, where we think that many of those models are getting in the way of some of those companies. And actually the, the idea of more micro-charging and you know, low-hit payments in a world where there is a credit crunch and people need to think about how they use their money differently are going to be really, really important. So I think for many companies, looking at how they charge for what they do and utilizing an almost completely flexible set of options for how people pay for things, I think is a really rich vein of, of opportunity for many companies. For some, it's introducing subscription-like programs. For others, it might be moving away from subscription-like programs to more opening up more um, high-volume transactional platforms but charging things in different ways, generating revenue for things in, in different ways and making it easier for customers to spend money on the things that really matter to them and not feel like they're paying for things that they don't want or need. So yeah, for me, the big one right now, partly because we're post-pandemic, partly because of the credit crunch and there's a lot of fluidity in marketplaces, I think people need to be looking at how they charge. I'm not saying put their prices up or put the prices down, but the way that they enable their customers to pay them for what they do is, I think, going to be one of the biggest areas over the next few years that people are going to really have to dig into if they want to innovate and do new things. And how did the pandemic affect the digital economy? Well, um, completely. You know, obviously, it had a million negative effects. I suppose some of the positive effects that came out of it were around the importance of digital infrastructure and the importance of being connected. For example, in business-to-business services, you could never assume that you could go on a video call, whereas now you would be hard-pushed to find somebody who worked in a company anywhere who you couldn't expect to go on a video call. Now, companies were forced into that behavior. They've also been forced into flexible working, hybrid working patterns, and all those sorts of things. And all of those things have had a big impact in how people think you know, where they're buying things, the sorts of things that are important to them. So I think we're seeing a big shift in consumer attitudes at the moment. I wrote about this recently. I think we're, we're, we're in one of those weird phases of almost infinite flux where post-pandemic, we're going to see years of, of kind of reactions to it in how people behave. So I think there are going to be attitudes that shift around for quite some time yet. And I think we're going to see a backlash in some areas. So I think one of the things that people are starting to realize is that new people coming into the workforce, actually there's real challenges around hybrid working and working from home models and things for them because they used to get a lot from sitting next to somebody working amongst an in-person team. 
So I think we're going to see the, the, the ripples from the pandemic hit lots and lots of those sorts of behavioral areas over the coming years, where I think companies, if they are smart and capitalize on it, will be able to offer new sorts of services and build new sorts of relationships with customers and partners that they never could before. But I, I do think that the two biggies are receptiveness to doing things digitally, full stop, from getting your groceries delivered to speaking to a surgeon. And how we think about what's important and what we value. Those two key attitudinal shifts will drive years of change. Within the digital space, there is, you know, so many things coming about that we may never have imagined would be monetized. You know, NFTs and, you know, people can make money from YouTube videos and Instagram posts now, as well as virtual reality really coming into fruition and and becoming more of a thing. Is there a particular sector within the digital space or something that you've witnessed that you think is really exciting at the moment? Um, I'm absolutely not going to say the metaverse. Um, one of the challenges of being in the digital industry is that there's always something that's going to change everything. And we get about three of them a month. And of course, most of them don't change everything. Personally, I think there are going to be big shifts in how money's moved around the world, how business is conducted with cryptocurrencies and things. But I think that's going to need a lot more government regulation. The Bank of England has just been given this edict to create a safe digital currency. And I think that's going to bring about quite a lot of change. And I think it will enable all sorts of new services and um, you know underlying things to happen. So if you think about how a property process works in the UK, it's a disaster. You know, buying and selling a house is still one of the most painful things that anybody can ever go through. It really shouldn't be that hard. And actually, if, if some of those systems were connected up better and money was moved around in more modern ways and contracts were handled in more modern ways and all those sorts of things, then I think, you know, the world would be a much better place. Um, so I think we're going to see fanatical behavior around the metaverse, you know, augmented reality and the full VR environment will start progressively having an impact. And I think that mingling of the digital and the physical world in real time, I personally think is going to be the most exciting phase of all of that work. Because again, we are, you know, we're, we're, we're finally realizing some of those sci-fi visions, right? The ability to walk down the street and get additional information being presented to me about things that are important and useful, that for me would be, uh, you know, a life-changing enhancement. And, and we're not far from it. You know, those things are well in development. Some of the stuff that is currently being worked on that people are seeing as quite gimmicky in the metaverse and in nfts and those sorts of things the technologies behind them and the things that they enable and they will enable will have really profound effects the good thing about my world i suppose is that there's always something new the bad thing about it is trying to figure out when any of those things are going to become useful and we actually for the most part we we urge people to be quite cautious and so we're generally only really interested in some of those technologies and advise companies to be when they become quite tangible and quite well proven, because there aren't many who really benefit from being pioneers. And you tend to have to be quite big and you tend to have to be in a particular part of the sector for that. I think most companies should be cautious and patient and wait until they can see genuine applicability for things. I can't tell you how many companies have burned enormous sums of money on data strategies with no purpose or the blockchain without knowing what they were going to use a blockchain for. Those sorts of things tend to have quite a lot of hype attached to them. They've all got really important components to them. 
but you shouldn't be investing in them and, and trying to do something with them until you can envisage, okay, how are we going to apply that? How's that going to allow us to do something for our customers or our partners or our team that we can't do today? How does it change the game in our sector if we can use it to do this? But I think my advice would always be, don't say three years from now, we're going to be this and we're going to do these things. and know that that requires a technology that doesn't exist yet. Our basic rule for that stuff is, if somebody somewhere is using it commercially, then imagine that you can use it too. And actually, as a basic rule of thumb for how to think about the use of tech in particular, where there is so much noise and there's, and there's so much exciting development going on all the time, that rule of thumb, I think, has always stood the people that we've worked with in really good stead. What advice would you give to a business that is maybe using the same processes it's used for um, its entire existence and it's maybe feeling a little bit stagnant or can see the world changing around very rapidly but isn't entirely sure how to make that first step of planning for the future? Uh, there's, there's this great book that's just coming out on this actually that um, they should probably read. Um, in many ways that is what I wrote the book for is just to give people a, a gentle introduction into how to think about this stuff right because I think the first step is to recognize that the issue exists. And like I said, that's, you know, that's exactly why I've written it as a kind of a compact, easy read. You know, anybody who's in any, any kind of business should be able to pick it up and recognize aspects of themselves and aspects of what they might need to do next in it. External perspective is really, really critical. As I said, you know, we don't see things of our business that we see in client businesses. So getting third parties to help with that process is really critical. Our role in the world is always coming in as an external view to help people see past all of those things that they can't see or to get past something that are kind of baked into them. Try different exercises. Try doing some of those things that force you to think differently. You know, another really good one and a really simple one that I use in workshops quite a lot. I say, right, that's a great idea now. How do you do it with no people in it? I'm not saying that there won't be people in it, but how do you run that service without any humans? By posing those sorts of questions of the process, what generally happens is that by the end of it, people have gone, no, we don't really need to do that, do we? We don't really need to do that. And actually, if we just automated that, would it really make any difference to us? Well, we'd save a load of time. And you end up at the end of that where everybody's looking at what they do currently in a very different way. And people have been brought back into the process to do really good stuff, like talking to customers who need proper support, rather than really boring stuff that probably makes them hate their job. And there are a lot of techniques to help you reframe the way that you're thinking, step back a bit. You know, it can be as simple as just go somewhere else and think about this stuff. But taking time to think and getting others involved in that thinking process to help you look at things in a different way and challenge yourself to really dig into those assumptions that you have about the current business you need to talk about business processes there are so many business processes that are run right now that are pointless and people have been optimizing them and optimizing them but actually in their future state what they really need to do is not do them anymore and sometimes there are huge amounts of money attached to these things that people don't need to be spending on so actually reshape the business and switch that process off altogether rather than spending a ton of time and money on re-engineering and tweaking an extra half percent here and half percent there to make it better. Great. We'll finish with a segment called Answer the Internet. This is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. The question we'll put to you today is, you're given $150,000 that must be used to start a business. What kind of business do you open up? I think I would go with something that's quite traditional, actually. 
given things that I tend to love personally, um, I might be tempted to open a bakery um, or, um, or something like that. I think we've got a resurgence of just really good quality things in local environments. Um, I think the shift to local retail and local services and community-based things is going to be another one of those really important patterns. So yeah, if somebody threw $150,000 at me and said, go do something, I don't think I would go invest it in digital services, funnily enough. I think I'd probably look to create something like an artisan bakery, or get my hands dirty. And then inevitably what would happen is having done that, I then start thinking about all the digital services that we used to wrap around it to help people, everything from ordering their bread to learning how to do it themselves. Even in our client base, there's a growing realization that digital services at times should be behind things and should be enabling things to happen, but we shouldn't undervalue the fact that there's still the need for the physical services and the physical experiences out in the world. That's great. I'm very excited for the Wilson Fletcher Bakery to finally open up. So am I now. I'm just not gonna I think that might be my uh, my work this afternoon now. <laughs> Where can people find your book and also follow your journey? The book's called Future Day Design. It'll be available. Um, it's available on Amazon and we're going to be producing other formats of it. You can find out about it at the book's website, which is literally just futurestate.design. And we'll be publishing additional follow-on articles and supporting content up there as well. So I'm just finishing an add-on piece about how to write a purpose statement, which is one of those things that you know, companies talk about purpose a lot these days, and then they write terrible purpose statements that don't mean anything. So we're going to try and put kind of a series of those follow-on practical topics up there. And there's also information up there about workshops and things that we run that are related to the techniques. So if people actually want some hand-holding and some help, then you know the information's up there for them to do that. But yeah, the book's available on Amazon. And do you have any final words for the audience? I guess the key one is be brave. I think ultimately, unless you start to think about what you could become, you will always continue just doing a version of the same thing. You know, there's a classic statistic that very, very few startups ever have a second idea. So what tends to happen is that actually the startup is the product of an idea. So somebody had an idea, they formed the company and raised some money to go and do it. Very few of them, even if they succeed, end up having another idea. Having ideas and figuring out what comes next is hard. And the best way to go about it is to throw yourself into it, give yourself a chance to think broadly. And to do that, you you have to be brave. You have to challenge all the things that you might have held dear, you know, in what you've done for the last 30 years in order to think about what you're going to do for the next 30. Mm-hmm.